Hello and welcome to the Eco Chamber, a podcast on all things environmental policy brought to you by the investigative team of journalists at ENDS Report. I'm James Adjapong Parsons. In this week's episode, we'll be covering Green Day. No, not the rock group, but the government's latest set of planning reforms and its new arm's length bodies. We'll be talking about the latest update to the biodiversity net gain metric, as well as the government's new water plan. And for our deep dive this week, we'll be looking back at the legacy of Sir James Bevan, the former chief executive at the Environment Agency, who stood down from the watchdog last week. So without further ado, let's enter the Eco Chamber. To help us get to the bottom of this week's environmental news, I'm joined by the ENDS Report's news editor, Pippa Neal, and features editor, Tess Colley. Uh, Pippa, you had the intimidating task of coordinating the government's Green Day launch. Forgive me. By the end of your research, were you brain stew? <laughs> yeah, I think that's definitely fair to say. Um, it was last Thursday was a pretty busy day in the ENDS Report newsroom. Um, So as part of these plans, dubbed Green Day, the government published what I would call a torrent of news um, with upwards of 40 documents, including nine brand new consultations and 10 separate policy papers and strategic frameworks. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so, I mean, okay, fair play to the government. They're working hard. There's a lot going on, but it's not necessarily quantity over quality. Some say it's been a basket case of documents. (laughs) Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, so first up, the kind of the big document that was published is something called Powering Up Britain, which was broken up into two separate plans, the Energy Security Plan and the Net Zero Growth Plan. And together, these documents um, set out what the government is doing to ensure the country is, in quotes, energy independent, secure and resilient. So there was Mm -hmm. kind of lots of different kind of parts and things included in this from like the confirmation of the launch of Great British Nuclear to um, the plans to set up a new solar solar roadmap in 2024, plans for a new energy efficiency task force. There was kind of, you know, a torrent <laughs> of new things announced. But key to all of these plans was the carbon budget delivery plan. So this is a document which informs parliament and the public on the government's proposals and policies to enable carbon budgets to be met. So there's six carbon budgets have been published to date from 2008 to 2037. And carbon budget six sets out plans up to 2037. And what was interesting is that in this new plan that was published on Thursday, the government says its quantified proposals and policies will only meet 97% of the savings required to meet this carbon budget six. And The reason this is interesting is because in July last year, the UK government was ordered to rework its net zero strategy after the High Court found it didn't have enough detail for Parliament or the public to scrutinise it properly. And in this two day hearing at the High Court, it was revealed that the plans to meet net zero by 2050 fall short of the sixth carbon budget by around 5%. So I've kind of, at the moment, have yet to interrogate exactly what this means, but As I mentioned, the plan still falls short by 3%. Right. And that's up to 2037. So they've done their homework, they've done the maths, and they predict that by 2037, they're they're not on track to meet their carbon delivery commitments. Right. And um, the Good Law Project, who kind of coordinated the legal action, they've said, you know, that they're going to be interrogating these documents closely. They said they've already had a meeting with Friends of the Earth and Client Earth to discuss their next steps. 
So I think, I mean, I don't want to speculate, but it's definitely going to be one to watch um, and see what they come, what conclusions they come to. Yeah, no, I, I read that you'd reported Mike, Mike Charles from Friend to the Earth, who was head of policy. He, he described it as deeply troubling that the government's quantified plans didn't fully meet legal targets for reducing UK emissions. So yeah, there's, I, I appreciate there's a lot of people concerned about this. Um, Tess, there, there was there was some other stuff though about the uh, markets and nature markets in, in this 40 plus document spill. Um, can you just talk to us a little bit about, um, yeah, what, what was in those frameworks? Was it a welcome to paradise moment or a boulevard of broken dreams? <laughs> <laughs> I Boulevard of not yet broken dreams to to be announced in due course. I think is the is what the government would say. Um, the Nature Markets Framework is one of the these documents that was announced once all this energy stuff last week, and it sets out the direction of travel the government intends to um, take to support the creation of of nature based private markets in the UK. So that this basically is what. So we, we have carbon credits in the UK and people can kind of trade carbon and you could plant a tree and say that will, you know, that will take X amount of carbon out of the atmosphere. Great. So this could see a situation where we have biodiversity, nutrient, water quality and flood risk credits or tokens, you can think of them as, uh, being sold across the country according to set standards. And it's the standard bit, which is quite interesting because, you know, like like I said, we've got carbon credits, uh, but we don't we don't have any kind of set way to say if you you know if you put that wetland in, that's going to give you X amount of biodiversity. It's a, it is much harder to measure though as compared to carbon because of what well, just just the way it works. Um, so what this framework said is that the government has appointed the British Standards Institution to, and they as they say, expedite a pipeline of investment standards for nature markets, uh, starting early this year, continuing for up to three years. Um, and as part of that, an accreditation mechanism will be developed so that any company who in the future would meet these standards would have the seal of approval, if you like. And this, the idea is it could put some integrity into the market. And that's the big thing, because at the moment, it's all a bit, you know, a bit of a rogues game. You know, who knows? Mm. You could say you're going to, I don't know, um, plant that hedgerow or whatever. But do you really know uh, what that's, if you're going to go on to sell that to someone, some, I don't know. Uh, some company who wants to say, well, look, we actually, we're not, we're not damaging the environment. We're making it better. Mm. Um, how are you actually proving that? So yeah, that yeah. was, that was probably the most interesting thing on nature that we saw last week. So it's to get that private investor, it's the buy-in from the private investors yeah. to, to get rid of the snake oil salesman. Yeah. In, in theory, that's, that's the idea. Yeah. Um, oh, Cause at the main, we do need some, we need some sort of mechanism to make it work. And there's a lot of money probably about to come into to this market because we're going to see biodiversity net gain become compulsory, nutrient neutrality. There's kind of new mechanisms coming in, so developers could, um, you know, mitigate against the kind of nutrient pollution caused by new housing. Uh, so there is there's money ready to be spent, and it's important that it's spent in the right way. And, and part of that, you know, part of whether the government wants some of that money to go is on new energy projects. Um, there was amongst that deluge of documents um torrent was it Pippa? torrent oh, amongst the torrent there was the the government i saw wanted to revise uh some of its national policy statements around energy mm. um can you just can you just tell us what that's about tess mm -hmm. yeah so these national policy statements are they're like guidance documents for decision makers for um that, that need to be followed when deciding if big infrastructure 
projects uh, should should be approved, should go ahead. The updated draft statements released last week, they cover kind of renewables, oil and gas supplies, electricity networks, um, and an overarching energy statement. And the idea behind them is to speed up the whole process because, you know, the idea is that we need to meet net zero, we need to stop uh, releasing emissions the way we are. Um, and we need to do that by turbocharging renewables and car- low carbon energy. Um, and that's what they intend to do. What's interesting, I guess, from an environmental point of view particularly, is um, amongst some of the new requirements in these statements is one that offshore wind should be considered as a critical national infrastructure, mm-hmm. um, which is great in some ways because like, that would mean that, yeah, like, yes, you need to go and build that offshore wind because we need more renewable energy. Part of this, which is interesting, is there's a new requirement within the statement um, that offshore wind should be considered as critical national infrastructure, um, which is great in some ways because um, you know we need we need more offshore wind, we need more renewable energy. Um, but what's interesting is that the statement really drives home the idea that the need for offshore wind in general should outweigh any other residual impacts not capable of being addressed by application of the mitigation hierarchy. So some of those really specially protected marine habitats potentially mm-hmm. get trumped. Yeah, it, it could quite feasibly see protected sites made more vulnerable to damage. It's not, you know, it's not that they're, this isn't saying, yep, go and build over them, mm. but it's saying a, a lot more weight will be given to the fact that we need renewable offshore wind. Right. Interesting. Well, sticking with water and the sea, moving to water inland, the government's now got a new water plan, Pippa. Uh, I've heard a lot about fines and wet wipes. What's all this about? Yeah, so this morning, the day we're recording, the government published its integrated plan for water, um, which included kind of a a few different things. Um, And firstly, a thing to talk about is potential changes to civil sanctions. So in this document, DEFRA said it will like launch a consultation on raising the current cap on variable money monetary penalties to an unlimited fine. So this could potentially mean that water companies that pollute rivers, the environment could be fined up to an unlimited amount. Um, and under these plans, this these this money, these fines would then be reinvested into water restoration projects rather than going back to the treasury. So that's kind of the idea is finding companies more and using that money to invest. There, there is a certain deja vu about this story because I know that the last environment secretary wanted to impose VPNs of up to 250 million. And I know at the time it was sort of critiqued as being excessive. And now they're saying it's an unlimited fine. How are they going to make that change work? Yeah, so so if you can kind of cast your minds back to the Liz Truss era, this was a policy that was introduced by the former Environment Secretary, Ranil Jayawardena, who pledged to consult on plans to increase the fines to 250 million, as you said. Um, but back then, ENDS actually exposed that these plans were, in quotes, nothing more than a pantomime, because it emerged that the Environment Agency had actually never levied one of these variable monetary penalties against a water company in the 12 years it had had the power to do so. Um, and Alan Lavelle, the chair of the Environment Agency, also said quite recently that an increase of 250 million was massive and crazy. Mm. Um, and when these new plans were announced to increase it to like an unlimited amount, um, Richard Reichman, um, a partner and regulatory specialist at BCL Solicitors, who has an extensive experience of working with water companies, said, you know, that an unlimited fine may sound tough and generate headlines, 
but the reality is more complicated. So in theory, this is, you know, a great thing. And on paper, it sounds amazing. But as we talk about again and again, it's like without proper enforcement powers, how are these things ever going to actually work? And I think, you know, there's lots of scrutiny that needs to be done into these plans and exactly what's going to happen. Yeah, and we'll, we'll be doing a deep dive next week about that for sure. Absolutely right. Scrutiny needed. So, so to finish our weekly news roundup, we're going to shift our gaze from the world of water to the realm of biodiversity. Um, and that is Biodiversity Net Gain, which is the government's flagship policy, which from November, is that right, Tess, is, is going to be mandatory for most uh, developers uh, where they'll need a 10% uplift in the value of nature as part of their housing applications. And to do that, they need to get their heads around something called the Biodiversity Net Gain metric, which is used to assess how these gains uh, are going to be quantified. And there's been a revamp, hasn't there, Tess, on that calculator? Can you, can you just tell us what the update is? Yeah, so this has gone through many updates now. It's we're at version four point zero, which updates the previous version three point one. Um, it's a bit like Apple when they got new products, except um, it's a bit a little less hype around this one. I don't know why. <laughs> um, so the metric it's previously faced quite a lot of criticism for you know lots of things, but classing certain habitats as low value when ecologists disagree, um, that sort of thing. But it looks like they've got to natural England. That is, have got to a place where they're they're happier with it. Uh, this is the version that is going to be enforced till about twenty twenty six. We are told, uh, and so it's going to be really important in seeing biodiversity that game through. So natural England has described this update to the metric as substantial, though a lot of it is actually to do with user experience and, and that sort of thing. On the ecological front, one change I noted that was quite interesting was that. Uh, bespoke compensation will now be required for the loss of any watercourse habitats classified as having very high distinctiveness, which is a sort of description given in the metric. Um, and Natural England has also reviewed a few condition assessment sheets um, associated with it, which that's the process through which a, a competent person is meant to, that's the phrase they use, is meant to assign habitat condition to any unit of land. Because that's how biodiversity is is kind of, we were talking you know, earlier about how you measure nature. And this is this is the kind of an early attempt, I think, to really actually how do you you, you how do you make a unit of nature? And this mm. is this is it. And well, and one of the things they want to do is hopefully they're gonna get competent persons to to make that value judgment. Mm. Um is there a capacity issue in local authorities? Yes. Uh, I mean, the latest the latest data shows that only about one in four councils in England have access to a chartered ecologist on a either a part time or full time basis, and that's, I mean, it's quite complicated stuff getting this biodiversity net gain assessment and and understanding the metric. It's it's it, you need a specialist, you need someone who really understands the habitats and who are ecologists, um, and so it's, it's it's a big problem that the local authorities who are going to be in charge of of approving these applications when they come through let alone monitoring them they don't they don't have that that expertise um it's a big number if one in four councils have access to chartered chartered ecological expertise and for anyone shouting at our podcast right now who's working in a local authority you know there will be other competencies such as being a chartered environmentalist or uh, accruing expertise over years of of service say um in the, in the field but you know it's the data we have and one, it doesn't. It's not a lot. One in four access to a chartered ecological no. expert, and and the government they as part of the biodiversity net gain kind of move coming in. 
they they've said they're going to you know there's going to be funding provided to uh, local councils. I think the latest announced was about 16 million in that region. Uh, it's on top of some previous money that was announced. But that you know you talk to ecologists or um, kind of professional bodies representing ecologists, and that's, that's, it's not going to scratch the surface. It's, it's really not. You've got to pay people to do these jobs. And it will take time to build up the experience whilst you're waiting for... Yeah, well, that's the other thing. I mean, I don't, we're not... We've, we've, I think there's a bit of a problem with getting people into the profession and um, because, you know, I don't think the pay is that good. Mm. Um, and certainly not in at local authority level. You, why, why work for a local authority when you could work for a big consultancy? Um, get paid a lot more. If you'd like to hear more about any of the big green news stories we've been chatting about today, please head over to our website, endsreport.com. So now, on to our deep dive section. For this week's Eco Chamber, we're talking about the Chief Executive of the Environment Agency, Sir James Bevan, who has stepped down after seven years in the role. To help me analyse his legacy, I'm joined by the Ends Report's own editor, Jamie Carpenter, and we've titled this part of the deep dive, the good, the bad and the ugly. So Jamie, could you take us through some of the things Sir James Bevan may be remembered for in a positive light, some of the good? Yeah, absolutely. One one thing to, I guess, kick off with is that he used his position to to raise awareness of some really important, but perhaps underreported environmental issues that, that really need to be on businesses and, and policymakers' radars. Um, so the, these things are kind of like future threats that that really need to be higher on people's agendas, and 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 so James Bevan um, used speeches occasionally to, I guess, outline the the dangers of not acting. So so things like um, this this was I think three or four years ago when he talked about the jaws of death, which mm. is quite a colourful phrase, and that that grabbed headlines. It really did, yeah. So that, that's 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 referring to the time when demand for water exceeds supply, um, and I think I think. When you look back at his speeches, there are quite a few examples like that where he's, he's very good at communicating issues like that in a way that makes you sit up and take attention. So I think that's definitely one thing to know. I think another thing that's kind of um, certainly over the last two or three years, um, there's been a few instances where where he's been, you've seen him fighting the the agency's corner. He's not afraid to challenge the government on things. So, so one of those examples would be the issue of, of pay at the agency um, and obviously talked about on the eco chamber quite a few times recently about the sort of ongoing industrial action um, right. um james bevan um has written to secretary of state um when it was george eustace so two or three secretaries of states ago um sort of criticizing the um unjust unwise and unfair pay deal on offer of his staff and, and sort of with with the other the former chair emma howard boyd they talked about the issue of staff having to use food banks because they weren't being paid enough and i guess related to that he's, he's also um talked about the 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 consequences of of the sort of ongoing funding squeeze on the agency as well so again his, some of the letters to ministers have been made public um, so he's basically kind of making the point here that you get the environment that you pay for. And um, as a result of the funding settlement the EA has, it doesn't really have the money it needs to properly tackle the polluters. So, and, and I think we'll probably talk about this in, in a minute, but a lot, a lot of the problems that the EA has kind of stem from these 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 funding issues. Do, do we know anything about kind of his the popularity of his character within the EA? Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting one because I think... I think um, so James Bevan has become quite a controversial figure and has been 
rightly or wrongly, um, a bit of a lightning rod for a lot of the criticism that the agency have had, particularly over the issue of, of sewage pollution and water pollution. Um, so that's something that you see quite a lot on social media. Um, but there, there are there are some staff who feel positively about his his leadership and are, are actually sad to see him go. Um, so it's not not necessarily the case that all staff at the agency feel negatively about him. Um, you might remember there was a story at the end of last year about um, bonuses. I think that there was there was a um, a call that he had with staff that was leaked to the media and he was asked whether he would give up his bonus to staff who were using food banks um, and he said no and that, that got reported and I think the the implication of that was that you kind of you kind of got the sense he'd lost the the dressing room at the agency, but actually um, we, we've we've had some some correspondence from a source at the the agency who works in um, in water quality and has been a regulator for more than fifteen years, and um, I think that the the comments are quite quite interesting. So I'll just re- I'd read a few of them. Um, one of them is is every staff member that I've ever spoken to has positive things to say about him as a leader and as a human. Um, another comment was during the pandemic he did regular calls with with all staff which touched the hearts of a lot of us and I know from reading his virtual leaving card uh, that I'm not the only one who is genuinely genuinely very sad that he's leaving Um, and and finally I don't always agree with him on everything but I respect him and I think he is the best senior leader that we've ever had so so I think that's kind of really interesting and I think that the I guess as a lot of the, yeah, a lot, yeah, and a lot of these things. I think, I think we we don't know much as we try. We don't know what goes on, on behind the scenes at organisations, and and things are probably more more complex and complicated and nuanced than kind of meets the eye sometimes. And it is complicated. Um, there are some things, however, where where campaign groups, environmentalists, and 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 maybe those in, in his own quarter might look back at. Sir James Bevan's legacy is, is some bad things that that's happened under his watch. Can we just talk about? Can you can you take me through some of those failings that you know may tarnish his legacy? Yeah, definitely. I mean, as you say, there, there, there'll be critics who who um, will say that he's leaving at a time when there's performance at the agency in, in some key areas is, is under a lot of scrutiny, and and his um, his successor. Philip Duffy, who's going to be joining from the Treasury, has got got quite a lot of um, pretty difficult things in his intray to to be dealing with when he joined. I think it's in July. So, and 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 I guess you you can say that that James Bevan has been dealt a very poor hand in in, in the sense that he's a lot of the issues that the agency is getting criticised and and in in turn that he gets criticised for are to do with the fact that that the agency has had its funding cut back drastically over over. Kind of more than more than a decade now, and any chief executive would would have found it difficult to operate in those circumstances, and and it's not really surprising that given that that some things have to give if you're overseeing an organisation in those circumstances, then some of your decisions are going to be unpopular ones, and and following from that as well, when when it comes to the issue of pay that we talked about, that it's not it's not in his gift to make a an offer that's improved it's it's not the agency's decision it's it's uh, higher up than that um but but yeah but the, the 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 issues um there are issues so so clearly the big one that's getting all the attention at the moment is is water pollution sewage pollution um you can't get away from that i think the businesses waste industry in particular are really concerned about permitting performance um there there are still 
very big issues with waste, crime, and then there's this ongoing industrial action. That, that um, in, in terms in terms of the red warning lights flashing on the dashboard, there's quite a lot going on there. Yeah, and and with the permitting, I know we're talking about you know things which take should take a few months. They can take up to several years. Um, and and you know the, the the waste on waste crime you mentioned. You know we've got this public accounts committee, which which is I don't know. I think they they were pretty scathing about the lack of enforcement from Sir James Bevan's unit. Yeah, exactly. So, so they, they were kind of saying that most most waste crime incidents are responded to with a a minimal or entirely absent enforcement response, and um, the number of incidents being investigated is a, a, a dropping. Investigations are taking longer, so it's. Um, I, I guess that's all link, linked in with the the um, funding situation and the fact that the agency is finding it hard to recruit and retain staff. So, yeah, so they're, they're all they're all um, difficult issues, and and I think I think um, people will have their own views on on who is responsible for those. But again, I think it's um, it's not in, in in my view, it's not fair to pin the blame solely on Sir James Bevan. I think the picture is much more complex than that. There have been some ugly things that have been said by Sir James. And that's my little segue into the final section of this, the good, the bad and the ugly. Thank you. Um, And those things haven't gone down well with certain quarters, certain sectors of business. Um, Can can we just end on those kind of your final thoughts and those things that that he said to the the public? Yeah, the the uglies. Yeah. So so I think I think the... um... He's, as we were saying, sort of early, earlier on. There, there have been. He's, he's been very effective in making sort of attention-grabbing speeches, and sometimes that's that's paid off. Other times, I think his comments have been taken badly by some quarters, as you say. So I think recent one of the examples recently is is some comments around um, waste export. So um, the, 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 there, there have been some in the waste industry that have been upset by this. So he, he basically said that. Sending waste abroad is not a sustainable business model because more and more countries are refusing it, and it causes environmental damage. Um, that's not how the waste industry sees it. They see it as kind of a important part of the circular economy, and that we don't have the capacity here in the UK to actually process the stuff. So I think that's that's a. I mean, no doubt there'll be some people that agree with him, but that that's been um, some courses have been quite upset by that those comments. Um, I think the. Slightly longer ago, the the comments that he made around the water framework directive, I think, were very, very unhelpful. So this this um, dates back to a speech three or four years ago, where, where he said that the directive, which is a totemic piece of EU legislation, should should be a candidate for thoughtful reform, and in particular, thoughtful reform, thoughtful reform in quote marks. Yes, uh, <laughs> yeah. So so he was talking particularly about this um, one in one out rule, which is one of the key key bits of it, where. Rivers don't meet the required status if they fail on any one of the four categories in the directive, um, and, and and he was saying it should be reformed. And I'm not sure how well judged that was because, it, for one thing, it kind of looked like the EU was trying to move the goalposts, make itself look better. Um, so I think at the time, campaigners said that 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 change would mean that healthy rivers classifications in in England would jump from 40 percent to 76 percent overnight just by changing that that way of measuring them which um right because it because it because it's okay if it fails on its chemical status yeah, but exactly it's, but it's yeah. still ecologically sound or yeah, whatever correct yeah right, yeah so right, so right. kind of no no extra investment no no more work and no no more fish needed to make those differences so right um so i mean so so on, on a kind of i guess a fairly 
superficial level, it looks like well, you're you're just kind of changing the rules to to make yourself look better. But but I think also in in terms of the context of Brexit and and the, and the um, the bonfire of retained EU laws, which hasn't quite been lit yet, but is kind of on on the horizon. It's, I don't think it's a particularly helpful thing for the chief executive of the Environment Agency to be saying. And um, and I think also in given given the whole issues around water pollution, it's it's um, not very helpful. But but also in in the context of the 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 ongoing bonfire of retained EU laws. Um, which hasn't really got started yet, but this is obviously a really important one in terms of environmental protection. Um, this is the rule bill. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, so for for the the boss of the EA to be kind of suggesting that this this is something that could be reformed, or it, it, I'm, I'm not sure that's a great a great position to be taking. I think also in terms of the perceptions of the EA and how people view it, I think has not been. I think it's probably a bit of a misstep to be saying this, given all the uproar around water standards and that sort of stuff. I think it doesn't, it doesn't really look like you're on the side of the environment if you're saying this. Too right you are, Jamie. And that's it. Today we've learned that time will tell if the government's Green Day announcements will deliver. So wake me up when September ends, and maybe we'll know more then. The government's water plan and fines for water utilities have a stinky sniff of deja vu about them that the biodiversity net gain metric 4.0 is becoming ever more user-friendly, even if some ecologists don't want to use it, and that the Environment Agency has lost its leader, Sir James Bevan. No matter what you think of the civil service Mandarin, one thing he's not, that's an American idiot. (laughs) Tess and Pippa not happy with that one. Uh, My thanks to Pippa and Tess and Jamie for delving into this week's Big Green News. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the readers of Ends Report, whose subscriptions ensure that important investigative journalism about the UK's natural environment actually takes place. Perhaps it's time you consider a subscription. And in the meantime, we'd really love to hear from you listeners with your thoughts, views and opinions. You can reach us by emailing ecochamber at haymarket.com or on Twitter using the hashtag ecochamber. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and maybe even share it with a friend. Until next time, goodbye.